Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Chadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Well, today is a very difficult podcast because we've got uh, this new leukemia classification, and who knows what's going on there in the world of leukemia, but... Um, Two classifications of leukemia came out. One is the ICC and the other one is WHO. And I noticed on social media a lot of angst about the fact that there are two classifications out there. Some folks have suggested there is some confusion to patients. There are problems that could occur to patients and there are problems and so on and so on and so on. By the way, I just noticed I say a lot of so on on the podcast, and I need to stop saying that. So you need to help me by direct messaging me on Twitter and let me know to stop saying it. Look, uh, these uh, these two leukemia classifications may have added some clarity into how we classify leukemia, but the problem is it could have added some complexity in designing clinical trials as well as from a patient perspective. So... I've invited two guests on my show. One is Dr. Aaron Goodman. He goes by Papa Heem from UCSD. And he is well known for the fact that he has a hairstyle that is um, uh, very difficult to describe. You will just have to watch him on my YouTube channel, Chadi Naban and Healthcare Unfiltered to understand what I'm talking about. And Dr. Sanam Lugavi, who is uh, at uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center, an amazing hematopathologist, and she has been on the show before simplifying the profession of pathology. I've invited both of them because I want to discuss the leukemia classification from a pathology perspective. And at the same time, I want to try to discuss the implication on patients and on from a clinician perspective, and how do we educate residents, fellows, and students about this new, new leukemia classification. So I hope you find this is, uh, as a helpful podcast. Uh, it was very fun to tape. And without further ado, Drs. Sanam Lugavi and Aaron Goodman-Papahim on Healthcare Unfiltered. All right, folks, this is going to be a very difficult to control podcast because here he is again. Papa is back in the saddle right here, coming with us from a, a location yet to be determined, someone like Porsche on the beach. As usual, Papa is never in an office when he talks to us on Healthcare Unfiltered. But thank God we have Dr. Lagavi with us, who's also another guest who's been with us um, before. So I'm very happy to host both of you on today's podcast. We're going to start by a little bit of an introduction. But just for listeners, as I said in my intro, really the purpose of this is to talk a little bit about the newest leukemia classification. And the purpose of it, we just want to try to understand how these classifications come about, why they occur, and the implication on diagnosis and clinical practice, research, as well as I'm curious to know, for example, what triggers investigators to decide to look at new classifications. All right, so we're going to get started. Uh, Sanam Lugavi, Dr. Lugavi, you start, introduce yourself, where you are, and welcome back to Healthcare Unfiltered. We're excited to have you. Thank you so much, uh, Chadi. So my name is Sanam Lugavi, and uh, I'm a hematopathologist and a molecular pathologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. You simplified pathology for us in the previous episode. I did. 
<laughs> Papa, it's probably your fifth or sixth appearance. Uh, and despite every time you just mess things up, we still invite you back. I don't know why, but uh, here you are. Introduce yourself. I know everybody knows you. I'm not sure there's a point of doing this, but thanks. Thanks for having me again. I'm calling from my porch in Pacific Beach, San Diego, California. It's about 70 degrees right now. It's nice. Um, I'm a bone marrow transplanter, malignant hematologist at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, where we see we see all hematological malignancies. Okay, look, we're gonna get started. So my first question is, I don't want to talk about the newest classification yet. Take me back a couple of months ago before this came about. Sanam, as a hematopathologist, what we're using at the time, and just take me through what triggers, like what, how long does it take to come up with new classification, and why do we need to reclassify things every so often? Sure, I mean, so before the, the newest classification, the two classifications that are out right now, uh, we were using the fourth edition of the WHO that was published in, it actually was um, you know, published as a paper in 2016, and that's why everybody calls it the 2016 WHO, but the book actually came out in 2017. So for those that are not aware, the WHO, the World Health Organization, uh, has a series of blue books uh, that essentially classify all sorts of malignancies. So every you know, organ system has its own blue book. So you have one for breast, you have one for GI. And so we had the heme. The heme book has always been the thickest one because, you know, because of the nature of heme and because bone marrows and you know, lymph nodes are easier to access, there's a lot of molecular information. So, you know, hematologic malignancies have always been ahead in terms of gen genetic classification compared to solid tumors. Uh, and so the book has always been a lot thicker and there's a lot more information in it. Um, but, you know, the, I think the reason that we come up with revised classifications is that we learn, right? We learn from research uh, and we have better tools to better classify these diseases. Um, and I think, in fact, if you look at the 2016 WHO, it was actually a revised version. So it wasn't really a new classification. It was an update on the previous one because, you know, so many things had changed in the hematologic malignancies world that they actually had to put out an update before the entire series uh, was, you know, re republished or renewed. Sanam, so, so really quick. So... But is it is it that the committee who usually the WHO committee or the folks that did the 2016 classification, mm -hmm. do they meet yearly and decide is it time to look at another classification? Is there an actual uh, cadence or a process or is it somebody in 2022 is like, hey, it's been a while, let's get together and like how take us through what happens? Right. So I, th there is a committee, right? And I think they do meet. So I'm not part of that committee. So I don't, I don't want to give any misleading information. Uh, but I think there is a committee. I don't think they decide annually to come out with, you know, classifications. Uh, I think there's a timeline for the WHO. And again, that's why, uh, you know, the fourth edition of the HEME book kind of went out of order and was published ahead of the other ones because there was a need for a revised classification but I don't think it was time to renew the entire series yet. And that's my understanding. I'm not sure if it's correct or not. So, so as a lymphoma specialist, obviously we've been using the WHO Swerdlow AL from 2016. Should we expect a new right. lymphoma classification coming up anytime soon? Oh, there, there is. There's a, there's a lymphoma classification 
the WHO is going to include a lymphoid, you know, the WHO book is going to include both lymphoid and myeloid, uh, and the ICC, the, the, there's now a blood lymphoma or lymphoid paper and a blood myeloid paper. So, so both classifications have revised lymphoma classifications as well. Right, but is it is it? Are we expected? I guess uh, maybe I didn't clarify. Are we expected the minute it comes out? It's oh, better better rephrase the question. Is the expectation now the papers are out overnight? People need to switch. The how did right? My things. When do you adopt it? Um, you know, I don't know. I guess that's that's a that's a question for the clinicians in terms of how you would act on these. Uh, but I can tell you personally that, you know, myself now, I'm going to start using the updated classification um, on my reports. And in fact, you know, I, I think we're going to have a discussion among our group between the pathologists and the clinicians uh, very soon and review the new classification and its implications, uh, you know, for, for how we practice. Aaron, you, you, you're, you're a clinician, one of the smartest clinicians I have uh, met uh, over the past uh, several years, and you're an educator, obviously. Before this classification came about, were you noticing some shortcomings? Like, were you as a clinician seeing patients and taking care of patients, were you thinking to yourself, they're missing something. I wish they come up with something that, that aligns with what I see. Were you identifying clinical gaps in the old classification? Yeah, well, before I answer that, I just want to, you know, my view on classifications of hematologic malignancies, you know, right, these are just cells in various stages of maturation, differentiation. And we, right, we arbitrarily as humans draw these lines for these diseases uh, whether it's MDS uh, with excess blasts or AML, or especially with lymphomas, whether it's a mantle cell lymphoma or, you know, or a marginal versa, whatever we call it. And, and you know, the cells don't know that. Uh, we just have to make these, you know, divisions. And why do we make these divisions? At least as a clinician, I hope that my pathology colleagues, when they come together and, and meet and go over if they need to make new entities or revise new entities, it's because of one of two things. There's a prognostic implication uh, for the patient or, uh, you know, and which is where we're going with these classifications, there's a treatment uh, implication, meaning something I can act upon. It makes no use to, you know, artificially divide acute myeloleukemia into 10,000 different subtypes off every mutation if there's no prognostic or if there's no treatment implication. So, um, and I think that is one of the reasons why, you know, I was drawn into our field and our, I love pathology of hematologic malignancies. I think they they keep that in mind, and 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 as we learn more, we learn. Uh, uh, you know, it's if you think about the diagnoses and how they classify, it, it kind of helps you with treatment and and, and and prognosis. So that's kind of my view as a clinician about uh, you know why we need this, right? Why do we need to keep on revising this? And I hope when they meet in these groups, that's what they discuss also, which I suspect they do. So to answer your question, um, deficiencies, and we're, we're just going to talk about myeloid. Uh, I believe on this discussion, you know, I I, I think. Um, you know, and this isn't, I'm not the first to realize this deficiency, nor will I take credit. You know, the the, the artificial line in the sand of acute myeloid leukemia uh, versus high-grade uh, myelodysplastic syndrome, you know, 20% more blasts uh, will give you a diagnosis of AML, but if you're 19% blasts uh, without AML-specific defining mutations, you're considered MDS. And 
it actually now does have treatment implications. Uh, uh, you know, someone with 19% first 20, uh, I'm probably going to treat the same, especially if they're older, uh, not fit for intensive chemotherapy with venetoclax azacitidine. But, you know, for insurance approvals, if it's called MDS, uh, venetoclax isn't approved uh, for that indication. So that's just one, one example uh, uh, that I can come up off the top of my head. So, so, so to summarize, just because, as you know, some of our listeners are a little bit um, general audience, not, not, not always hematopathologists, what, what you're contesting is in the old classification, there was an arbitrary number that was chosen above which a disease is uh, classified as acute mild leukemia, below which the disease classified as, as myelodysplasia. Sanam, how did this number come about? Like, you just like flip a coin, 20, 25? <laughs> no, so if you go back to the, the FAB classification, I don't know if you remember the French, American, British classification. Um, so well, the I ANL do. I'm cutoff. Old. I'm okay. old. I do. <laughs> I'm actually a big fan of the FAB, even though, don't, you know, it's, actually, I see it. Was the the different change, so. For me, it was the easiest. Um, so, you know, the, we had the RAB-T category, right, which was the refractory anemia with excess plasma transformation, and that was the 20 to 30%, and then 30% and above was um, AML. Uh, so, you know, there are studies that actually, again, you know, I, I, with, with acknowledging that the blast count is not very repro reproducible and also, also an arbitrary number, uh, but, you know, high blast count AML versus low blast count AML, there are historical papers that, you know, show significance. But I think if you think about it, at the time when we came up, we as, as a field, not me, right? Uh, when, when the field of hematopathology came up with these numbers, we didn't really know much about the genetics of AML, except for maybe some of the translocations, right? Some of the chromosomal abnormalities. Remember, we're, you know, mutations as we know them now, only started being incorporated into the diagnostic or prognostic algorithms, what, maybe like in the last 10, 10, 15 years, right? So I think that was the best we could do at that time to come up with something that would differentiate between MDS or low risk MDS cases, and maybe the higher risk MDS cases and then AMLs, right? But now we know that there are certain genetic abnormalities that regardless of blast count, probably, um, you know, probably dictate the course of the disease uh, that is more closer to AML. And then others may behave like a low risk, you know, well, it's not true. If you have high blast count, you're not going to behave like a low risk. And yes, but you know, some AMLs with good genetics may actually behave better than some MDS with bad genetics, right? So I think the blast count is now not as not as robust of a prognostic indicator as it used to be when we didn't have this information. And I think that's, you know, and, and you'll see that both classifications now have um, modified the way that they, they look at blast counts. Aaron, before the new classification, and we're gonna go over that in a little bit, uh, was there only one classification that you're using as a clinician, which was the WHO from listening? What were you, did you have more than one classification you were using before the new thing? Um, so it's mainly for me, the WHO, um, which um, I have a copy of that book. And uh, I would try to read most of that book, especially when I saw the diagnoses. And that's what really it's what my pathologists were using uh, at the university I work at. And they were uh, using the WHO. So, okay. So let, let's go now over, you know, obviously, you know, we have 
progress in the field and the pathologists got together and they felt there's, it's time to do this. Are these two completely separate entities, Sanam, like two completely separate bodies um, that is there, or is there a crosstalk between the WHO and the ICC? And the ICC stands for what, for those who don't know? International Consensus Classification. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm not aware of a, um, I guess, systematic crosstalk between the two, but I do want to make, make two points, uh, you know, just to clarify in the beginning. One is that the classification is not made entirely by hematopathologists, right? So both the WHO and the ICC, if you look at the people that are, you know, authors and advisors on the uh, on both classifications, so it's a, um, you know, it's pathologists, hematologists, um, oncologists, geneticists, uh, molecular biologists, researchers. So there's, you know, it's it's a very multidisciplinary um, system, both the, the WHO and the ICC. And the reason for this being that I think, you know, it's everybody recognizes that it's essentially impossible to, you know, practice and come up with classifications in a vacuum. You need input from multiple teams to come up with a, um, you know, with a sound classification that is practical and, uh, you know, uh, and, and people can actually apply it and treat patients. Uh, so that's one. Uh, the other the other point I want to make is that, you know, both of these classifications are evidence-based, right? Nobody just sat and came up with disease entities because, you know, they like to. So th for the most part, there is a lot of overlap. If you actually read the two papers, there's a lot of similarities. I think where there are differences are subtle things. And again, are maybe, you know, what Aaron was saying, are in the in the more arbitrary things, you know, or, or criteria, and not necessarily the genetics or you know the more objective uh, criteria. So I want to go over some of these similarities and differences. Aaron, as a clinician, and you are going to have to teach your residents and fellows and students who are going to come with you through the rotation about these new classifications. When you first saw these to um, what struck you the most as a clinician educator? Well, they're, they're, you know, one, just looking, I mean, there's a lot of new stuff to know. <laughs> uh, and I've mainly looked at the WHO, uh, which I, for the record was, that's the one I'm going to adopt because I, I, uh, that's what I used before. Uh, um, but the MDS is completely uh, revamped uh, and different from, from what there's a, a lot new, uh, there's more, there's now more genetic defining, you know, AML uh, events. Like, you know, we always remember 1517, which is acute promyelocytic leukemia, 821 and version 16, our core binding factors. Those, those were ones that were defined by uh, cytogenetic abnormalities. There's now new, uh, there's additional ones that we have to know that regardless of blast count will be called uh, AML. Uh, those were kind of the, the 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 main things. Systemic mastocytosis, which is a disease I like because uh, it's an oddball one that I see in my clinic, uh, which is already incredibly confusing. They added some uh, nice little nuances to that that I'll have to pull out that algorithm and paste. So uh, it's uh, what surprised me was like you know it's been a few years and you know and things are different, uh, which is exciting, uh, but it's also a little bit frustrating that I have to. I mean I don't know them yet, and I'm seeing these diagnoses like it's kind of scary. Like I'm seeing patients and I don't know the exact diagnostic criteria yet. Uh, I'm being honest with you. I don't think anyone really does yet, uh, and I'll get comfortable with them. And then which we'll talk about. 
uh, uh, once she when she goes over some of the differences, that just adds a new little bit of layer of uh, uneasiness for me and, and frustration. Uh, the fact that there's some differences between how we classify cancers in individuals. But you did feel when you look at the WHO, uh, you felt it added a little bit more granularity and clarity in terms of prognosis and treatment implications to your patients, or you? Yeah, I, uh, and I don't have it memorized, so hopefully she does, and we'll go over the, <laughs> I, I like how the, the new MDS to me is, it's uh, refined in a little bit simpler in a way, and the more genetic, like there's beautiful stuff now with TP53, which we've all known for quite some time that TP53 mutated myeloid neoplasms, whether it's MDS or AML, are very difficult uh, diseases to treat. Uh, uh, but there's been some confusion with regarding, do you need one TP53 mutation? Two, how do you define that? And, and this was further refined in these classifications, which I like now. Now I can say with more comfortable that, you know, when a patient's in front of me and have one, has one of these truly uh, horrific leukemias or MDSs, that uh, it's a specific diagnosis and I can go over the prognosis with them. So Sanam, we're going to focus, we can't cover everything, right? We're not going to, I mean, we can spend an entire episode on just systemic mastocytosis, but we're going to- Oh, that would be a great episode. Sign me up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll come back for that. Probably okay. will be seen by two people. Two people. That's okay. Yeah. But uh, we've agreed before we went on the air, we're going to discuss AML and MDS specifically. So, so you, you'll have to admit, Sanam, that for clinicians, when you have two classifications- if they're consistent, it's fine, but clearly there are two because there are some differences. Let's start, what differences exist in MDS and maybe a little bit of a quick explanation how things were before, uh, so right. listening can get context. So um, if we go to the, the prior WHO classification, really we used a 20% blast count for AML and anything short of that was MDS, right? So you had low blast count MDS and then MDS with excess blasts. Uh, I think we spend a lot of time uh, determining, you know, as pathologists, you know, is this MDS with unilineage dysplasia? Is it MDS with multilineage dysplasia? Because those were part of, you know, subclassifications of MDS. Uh, now, if you look at, I'll start with, you know, that I think what is the major difference between the two classification systems is the category of MDS slash AML that exists in the ICC and does not exist in the WHO, right? So that's, I think, the major divide. Um, and I think, you know- Sanam, can you clarify that? So it's MDS AML is its yes. own entity, right? MDS distinct AML from MDS is- and Distinct from AML. Yes. So let me, let me start with, with the WHO and then we'll go to the ICC and we'll compare. So- for the WHO, now there are AML additional, AML defining genetic. So, you know, as Aaron was saying, you know, we knew that PML RARA was AML defining. And what we mean by that is it's regardless of the blast count, right? If you have 15% blast, but you have a 15, 17 translocation with PML RARA, you're still AML. You don't need the 20%. And that's in the old classification, right? Or a core binding factor leukemia with 821 or inversion 16. So the WHO has now added uh, to, to this class of you know, AML-defining genes, uh, several other um, uh, chromosomal entities, including inversion three. Um, uh, you know, um, I think inversion three is what, what is the, the, the most significant change for AML-defining. And then NPM1 mutation for WHO is now AML-defining. 
Um, and then the, uh, you know, anything other than these genetic abnormalities, there's, you know, like a nice table that tells you what exactly these genetic, oh, like an MLL or a KMT2, you know, formerly known as MLL, but now like KMT2, now KMT2A uh, translocation is AML defining, even if you have 10% blast by WHO. Uh, so the genetic abnormalities are pretty much the same in the ICC as well, except for, for ICC, you need at least 10% blasts to call any of these entities AML, right? And this includes 1517 and 821 and inversion 16. Um, and anything between 10 to 20 with these abnormalities is gonna be MDS slash AML. And I think the, you know, the reason, I'll tell you what, what I think the reason behind both, uh, both classifications is for having or not having the categories. Uh, I think for the, for the ICC, for having the MDSAML category, uh, the intent was to give the clinicians the option to treat the patient as MDS or as AML as they see fit, right? So they can choose to treat the patient like MDS if they think the patient, you know, is clinically behaving more like an MDS or an AML if they think the patient is behaving like an AML. I think the reason for WHO for, you know, essentially getting rid of the blast count um, is that, you know, if you look at the majority of cases with these genetic changes, like with an NPM1 mutation or with an MLL translocation, these are very proliferative diseases. And, you know, there are studies that have shown that these patients, if you leave them untreated for a couple of weeks, they're, you know, if you leave, like, like I've seen this with my own eyes, you get an NPM1 mutated MDS, what's called MDS, you know, we're a referral center, patients come, you know, from elsewhere. So they got a bone marrow biopsy last week, they had an NPM1 mutation and 5% blast, it was called MDS, you know, rightfully by the previous classification. By the time they get to us, they have 70% blasts, right? So I think that's, that is uh, the reason. But again, the WHO does clearly acknowledge that, you know, the boundary is not very clear. And, you know, if, if the pathologist feels, feels more comfortable, they can use the MDS slash AML category. So, so uh, but that, that's to comment on this. That does, to me, it doesn't seem there's a difference there, right? Because Aaron, even right. earlier, earlier you were mentioning, you know, 19, 20%, I'm going to actually see how the patient looks. I and mean, it seems like there's consistency, no? I mean, that, that's why I'm saying, I think, you know, again, the, the logic uh, is, is the same. And I think the science behind it is the same, right? They, like these two systems use the same literature to come up with, with these right. classifications. Right. I think that the wording is a little bit different, but I do acknowledge, and I think this is something important for us pathologists to be aware of, is that, you know, the, the diagnosis that we make you know, we, we sign the report and then we're pretty much done with the diagnosis, right? But I think it has several implications. And I think we need to be as a, as a field and, you know, as clinicians, as pathologists, as, um, you know, anyone that takes care of patients, we need to be aware of these subtleties. One is that, you know, the implications for the patients, right? They want to understand their diagnosis. And I think that's very important because the patients have a right to understand their diagnosis and hopefully have a uniform diagnosis. So I think, you know, I, for us to explain, maybe at least in our reports and say, this is this by one classification system and the other by another classification system. So that when the patient gets maybe two pathology reports from two different centers, they don't think that they have a conflict in their diagnosis. 
that is important. The other thing is, you know, we have to think about the insurance implications of the diagnoses that we make, right? The, the um, eligibility of patients for trials. And I think this is very important for prospectively people that design clinical trials, right? So if you want to capture patients um, by both classification systems, I think you need to be aware that some of these patients are gonna be called MDS slash AML, others are gonna be called AML. So when you're writing your eligibility criteria, you, you wanna try and be more inclusive, right? If, if that's what your, the intent of your trial is, to be able to treat more patients. And these are things that I think we have to be proactively and prospectively um, aware as a field um, with the new classifications. Aaron, I, I, I totally understand all of the points. I mean, Sanam articulated this wonderfully. I still see this is more similarity and kind of leaving things up to you as a clinician. If you see somebody with a 15% blast and you're looking at the uh, chromosomal translocations, it gives you that more of the your decision how you classify this. Um, what, what's your, what are your thoughts as a clinician when you heard what Sanam said? What, how do you react to that? Well, that's, that's the shame of it all. Uh, they are very similar. Uh, uh, there's based off the same data and the same good people. But, you know, here's the irritation or the irritating factor is, you know, they come to me and they have, they get a diagnosis by the WHO of AML and then they go get their second opinion at the lovely MD Anderson. Uh, and the pathology report says something different. It's for no good reason because we can't agree on one freaking classification system. It's just gonna create an extra layer of confusion and possibly angst for the patient. Uh, as a clinician, I'm not gonna present them both diagnoses. I'm gonna say, this is what you got and here's why I'm treating you and so-and-so. Uh, uh, and you know, it's not gonna be every patient, that, but it, it just adds to, to, to confusion and, and uh, you know, you know, make patients. But, 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 but Aaron, I'll push back. I mean, as a clinician, you're still going to be held hostage to the report coming from your own hematopathologist. Well, at least it's one diagnosis. But, but, but furthermore, with the clinical trials, I mean, that's a whole nother on top of the eligibility criteria. Do they choose one? Do they choose both? Now, when we go back in the future, you know, 10 years from now, we want to go look back at one specific, you know, group of patients. And it's going to be that much harder if certain trials are using one, even though they're the same, but are grouping them slightly different. It just, don't you see that that's going to add a complexity level uh, that doesn't, if, if we had our, if we had a complete agreement, it just, it makes no sense that we have to have two different groups that, that classify these malignancies, although they're basically the same, they're slightly different. And now we have what is already a confusing thing, hematologic malignancies, uh, more confusing for, I, I I, guess I, 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 that's the I, frustration I, I have. Yeah. And I think we need to go over additional differences, but yeah. the way I envision clinical trial design will be, and, and maybe I'm wrong, I think future clinical trials will actually include both. They will say eligible patients are those who are classified by WHO as such and or, or ICC as such. I think that's you're going to have to include those because, frankly, you can't tell what institutions will adopt, and I doubt that every institution will will issue a report with both classifications. At MD Anderson, maybe they'll do that. They maybe issue a report, WHO is this, ICC is that. I think so. But, but can't we agree it's a shame that like you could be a, a, an institution where pathologists in the same group or whatever are gonna be using different, you know, like that, it's just, an, I, that's, again, I know it's more complicated and there's all this history and all these things, but it's just like, you know, and then in the future when, you know, right, this is just the first revision, 
you know, they started out pretty similar, but who, who's to say in every reiteration of these, there's more string and that it's just going to, it just creates a mess, uh, in my opinion, that, that, that was, I wish not necessary. Are there other differences, Sonam? Yes. Uh, so again, so going back to NDS now, there are subtle differences. So um, let's start with the WHO. So the WHO um, essentially got rid of the morphologic categories of dysplasia, saying, you know, unilineage dysplasia, multilineage dysplasia, a lot of it because, you know, dysplasia is kind of in the eye of the beholder, especially mild dysplasia is very difficult to, to you know, determine. Uh, so MDS is now classified by the WHO either by genetics uh, or by blast count, or there's one category of hypoplastic MDS, which Aaron, I'm sure, I'm sure knows very well in the WHO that is not included in the ICC classification. So the reason it is included in the WHO classification is if you look at the patients with hypoplastic MDS, there is a lot of overlap between these patients and patients that have aplastic anemia, uh, you know, some of the shared features, including having small PNH clones, and these patients typically respond better to, um, to immunosuppressive therapy. Uh, so that's why the WHO decided to, to keep hypoplastic MDS as an entity. Um, so the other genetically or the, the genetically defined entities by WHO are uh, MDS with isolated uh, deletion 5Q, because, you know, we've always known the implications of this. Uh, MDS with SF3B1 mutation, uh, again, because SF3B1 mutation we know is a good prognostic uh, change or genetic change and also is associated with bring sideroblasts. Um, and then uh, MDS with biallelic TP53 uh, loss. All right, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit because I think this deserves a discussion in and of itself. So the reason for this category, and both, both, um, both classifications include this, right? MD have this as an entity. MDS, well, I think the WHO calls it uh, multi-hit TP53, and the, sorry, the ICC calls it multi-hit TP53, and uh, the WHO calls it biallelic loss. So if you think about the biology of TP53 for the listeners that um, may not be as familiar, so TP53 is a tumor suppressor gene, right? It's one of the most important genes in our body. You know, it's the most commonly mutated gene across all malignancies. Um, and essentially, uh, you know, there's a germline variant of TP53, pathogenic TP53 mutations that cause Lee-Fermeni syndrome. And these are patients that have a genetic predisposition to cancer. But the majority of P53 mutations are actually somatic, meaning that they happen during the course of loss and it's not inherited. It's actually somatic. So your, your cells acquire this mutation or lose a copy and then you get loss of TP53. So if you think about most tumor suppressor genes, in order for them to have the detrimental effect that they do, you have to lose both copies, right? Theoretically, one functional copy should be good enough. Uh, whereas oncogenes like MIC, you only need one bad copy, right? It'll, it'll do its bad thing. So uh, the, the reason that both classifications now have this is that, um, you know, I think last year, a couple of years ago, this landmark paper by Elsa Bernard and Ellie Papamanuel, they actually looked at a large series of MDS patients and showed that patients with one mutation in TP53 
essentially behave like patients that don't have a TP53 mutation. So you need loss of both copies to have the very bad prognosis that is associated with you know, TP53. And that's why both classifications now include TP53 uh, by allelic loss. Now, how can you get by allelic loss or multi-hit TP53? So you can have multiple mutations. And you know, theoretically, it's inferred that when you have two mutations, they're in the two different alleles, just thinking about the biology of P53. Uh, or you can have one mutation and deletion of the other copy by way of chromosomal deletion, right? Loss of the short arm of 17, uh, chromosome 17, or the other mechanism by which you can get loss of TP53 is copy neutral loss of TP53. And that is the hardest for us to determine because that is not something that we routinely look at in clinical laboratories. So we look for mutations, we look at the karyotype and we can do fish to detect uh, copy number loss, uh, but there are specific uh, methodologies that can detect copy neutral loss of heterozygosity, and that's not readily available or routinely done. So there are some things that you can use um, you know, as a surrogate. So if you have a TP53 mutation with a very high VAF or variant allele frequency, then you can kind of infer that the other copy is also lost and you only have representation of the mutant uh, allele. Um, so that's, that's the story with the MDS with biallelic loss or multi-hit TP53. And both classifications include this, again, both classifications include SF3B1 and deletion 5Q. Uh, and then uh, the WHO, you know, if outside of these genetic categories, then you're, uh, you're classified by BLAST. So there's low blast MDS, and then there's MDS with increased blasts. And increased blasts are the same as they were before. So it's IB1 and IB2, and it's you know the the two percent and five percent blast count, and the five percent and ten uh, percent blast count for blood and bone marrow respectively. Um, and then for ICC, again, if you have uh, more than ten percent, then they don't essentially they they don't have the excess blast two category anymore. They, that is called MDS-AML in the ICC classification. Erin, I can understand why as a clinician you're confused or you're seeing, I mean, I, I see there's a lot of information uh, that Sanam just uh, shared with us. And I could imagine it will take months until people adjust to it. And, and in all fairness, Sanam, what you do at MD Anderson is all hematopathology. Oh, I agree. I, yes, yes, I absolutely. I, I'm trying. And I think I think in a lot of large community sites, there's also hematopathology at this point because it's a completely very different field. I'm just imagining how this will cascade into the general medical community. Erin, um, can you reflect on all what Sanam just shared in terms of the MDS specifically, and how would you do you have a do you have a way to simplify this? Because you are like the Twitter master when it comes to simplifying things like in 280 characters. I can't picture you simplifying the classification in 280 characters, Papa. No, I don't think I could do the TP53 uh, uh, in that many characters. Um, I echo your like this is no. Uh, uh, you know, dunk on the community. They have the hardest job in the world. They do everything. And uh, even for me, like it's taken me five years as an attending to finally like feel kind of comfortable with the WHO 2016. Uh, and I just imagine these community centers where 
they do all pathology and uh, uh, now they're just hit up with this. Like I feel their stress and, and uh, uh, with the difficulty, you know, as far as I think with the TP53, at least what's most useful for me. And, and I love that explanation because uh, uh, that, that always confused me, uh, especially now with that new data that you really need to. Uh, uh, and the way I think about it is, you know, an easy way for me is, and Sonam can correct me if I'm wrong, usually when they have two, even if it's hard for you to figure out if they have two losses in TP53, those are almost universally associated with like those horrific karyotypes where every Complex member carried. in the world, yeah. yeah, like, right, it would be almost impossible, incredibly unusual to have two losses of TP53 in the karyotype report come back normal, correct? A hundred percent correct. Yeah. Yes, so absolutely. I think That'd be very easy. And clinically, you know, if you can't figure out if there's one or two, you know, if you have one TP53 on an NGS and every cytogenetic abnormality in the world on your karyotype, you're going to treat them the same. And I think that eliminates that one rare type that she was talking about that we can't can't really test for. And, and you know, when it comes down to it, and I've changed my mind on this with with truly bad TP53 complex karyotype, the worst of the worst. Uh, they unfortunately these patients with everything we do don't do that well. Uh, but I find it hard to to um, put patients through with those mutations, you know, with a standard induction, at least, you know, even though, even if they're fit, you know, given their outcomes are unfortunately dismal with, with everything we do uh, to put them through a month in the hospital with seven plus three. Uh, so I do think it's helpful in that, that we're finally officially recognizing that. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, at least from a clinical standpoint, I, I'm now treating all those with, with Venesa. A more broader or philosophical question is, should we even be transplanting uh, those, those patients and putting patients through the resources of transplant when just about, I, you know, I think it's a 5%, uh, if even, uh, long-term survival with, with that procedure. So um, I, I just kind of just rambled. But uh, uh, the, the, I think what Sana said about T53 really, really uh, is succinct and, and worth, I think, the most important thing now to, to recognize. Okay. Other differences on the AML side? Right. So other differences, um, again, these are subtle. And, uh, you know, I can tell you, why the differences exist and why in reality they're not that different. Um, so um, if you remember, the WHO fourth edition had the provisional category of AML with, uh, with biallelic CBPA mutation. Remember that category, Aaron? So yes. the reason for that is that, you know, historically the, the uh, literature had shown that Patients with acute myeloid leukemia with biallelic, meaning two copies, right? Two copies of their CBPA gene mutated, they have better outcomes, better prognosis. Okay, so now fast forward to the newer literature. Most recently, um, I think in January of 2022, a huge German study. There was literature before that too. I don't, I don't want to disrespect the authors that you know from the other papers. But I think the largest series that I've seen is the German paper that looked at 4,000 plus patients. Uh, and they actually saw that, you know, it's not necessarily the biallelic CBPA patients that do better. Uh, it's the ones that have in-frame mutations in the BZIP domain of CBPA uh, that do better, even if they have one mutation, right? So now both classifications recognize uh, acute myeloid leukemia with in-frame mutations in the BZIP domain of CBPA as an entity. Uh, where there's a subtle difference is that 
I believe for ICC, you know, for WHO, I'm, I'm sure that bioallelic is still included. And I believe for ICC, it is not. So it's only BZIP. Now, you may think that's very different, but in reality, it's not. Because if you look at the majority, 90% of the patients with biallelic CBPA mutations actually are the ones that have, you know, mutations in the BZIP domain. So if, if you look at these patients, you know, there are odd, very odd, rare scenarios where there might actually be a difference. But if you look at the majority of the patients, they will fall into the same uh, diagnostic category. Um, so that is, yes. Before we move from the um, CBPA, I'd like, Aaron, any comments on that? Yeah, so this is something where like, you hear her talk about this, zip this, that, you know, like as a clinician, you can look, look, let this go past you. But like, this is like something that's incredibly actually clinically important that, you know, I, that worries me that this might like, I just learned about this. And like, I try to keep up with everything. <laughs> I'm being, he, he keeps texting me once a week. He's like, do a tweet on CBP. Yeah, like I, I will, and, and, I promise. And why I was so, you know, this was, I wish I, this is so important to know is because, you know, this slight change where, so traditionally, just to repeat CBPA alpha, what was on the board is you need to have two mutations uh, uh, to be considered ELN or, or good risk AML. And good risk AMLs are typically patients that achieve a 90% complete response to seven plus three chemo and do not need an allogeneic transplant. And with that approach, roughly 50 to 60% of patients will achieve long-term cure. And you would always look for two. And it was always on the test. If you just had one, those were not the good actors, and you would treat them more like intermediate risk AML, which in many centers is an allergenic transplant, which is like the worst thing in the world you have to do to someone if you have to do it. Uh, um, so you always look for an excuse not to do it. Well, now there's this BZIP, and if you just have one and have this ZIP thing, um, they're good risk. And, and like, I didn't know that. And like, here, I'm someone that like does transplant, like, and these are why this stuff's so important. But, but, but hold on, but hold on, yeah. hold on. Yeah. Me... But can, I, can I just say yeah. something? This, this well, provides I, an opportunity for I, me to say something. Yeah, and I wanted to say something, but, but uh, and I, I don't know if this is pushing back or not, but what I'm saying is, I don't think today you should be ready to change your entire practice based on this. There is no data yet. No, 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 there is. Chadi, well, there is. To change, so the practice, to change practice? Yes, yes. It wouldn't have changed the, the recommendation. This is a so, huge thing. Yes. But my question is like, no, no, are you, are you ready? Is. Okay, tell me about that. Because, because it's, so this is not something that, you know, like the classifications just came up with. There is plenty of data behind this. Right, and that's when, the, you know, that's I think when changes in classification are made is when there's, you know, sufficient and firm data behind, behind these changes. And I think that's, that's the reason. It's not based on this paper or the two classifications. It's based on years of literature before no, no, no. that. Yeah, I, I guess I'm going back to the, remember when we started, we said there are two reasons to change the classification, prognostic or therapeutic. Yes. So that is my lack of knowledge that we have already therapeutic implication, because sometimes yeah. you can have a, the, the presence of something or the absence of it might have a prognostic implication, which is good enough for designing clinical trial when you select risk population. I didn't realize that this particular question has immediate therapeutic implication. Yeah, it's yeah, I mean, it does. One BZIP now if you look at the data, you just do chemo and they don't, you know, they're a good risk AML and a good risk AML won't do a transplant. Had they had one without the BZIP, 
those are they do worse and, and like this is a huge change which is why when i was learning about this i was like oh my god like we need to scream this from the yeah, roof Sanam, you, need to, you need to have it you need to have it i will i will i, 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 I promise i, to, I, I don't want to screw it up it's very no important. no i will yeah. i will i promise so okay um I, I think, you know, I, I want to make maybe two suggestions, and this is maybe more for, for my HEMPATH colleagues that, you know, hopefully are listening. I think, you know, as, as you were saying, I think HEMPATH is becoming increasingly difficult and complicated, right? And that's why majority of hospitals or centers have hematopathologists. And, you know, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of you know, as Aaron was saying, I think uh, you know, people that do general pathology, like people that do general oncology have the hardest job in the world. It's very difficult to be able to say, I, I mean, God knows I can't do it for sure. You know, I'm like, we're very privileged. We look at like this tiny field of disease and we get good at it, right? So, but I think it's important to recognize that with, with all of these complexities, it's important to like, you know, send these cases out, have, you know, have, have a specialist maybe look at them or, you know, at least to the centers where they can do a complete workup on, on the, the patient, the, you know, the patients or the samples. Uh, so that is one thing because again, there's, you know, there's so much detail in actually giving a complete diagnosis for now a patient with an acute myeloid leukemia, right? Acute myeloid leukemia is like a hundred different diseases. It's not just one disease. And the other is, I think, you know, reading these, these papers, there, there are subtleties in the papers that I think, uh, you know, I, I read and I, I realize why these subtleties are in there because I, I, you know, I imagine seeing a case where this is an implication, uh, but I think it may not come through as clearly if you're not a hematopathologist, right? So I think it's important to maybe like talk to your hematopathologist, like have them come like summarize the, the, the paper for you, you know, like have them give a talk on, on the, the revised classification. So, so I think, you know, both the trainees and, you know, the, the clinicians understand the subtleties of how this is going to change our practice and the way we, you know, we I, write our reports. I can see a lot of workshops happening. Um, I want to, uh, look, I know we, we want to do like a short and sweet. There's a lot of things going on. I think my last topic that I would really want to talk about, and then I'll let you go to your own lives, which is, you know, one of the things I like about social media is I, I, I usually get the pulse of what's going on. Like my sense is it may not, it doesn't reflect the real world, frankly, but it gives you a sense of what is really going on. I could tell that there was a lot of anger about these two classifications, to be honest. There was a lot of tweets flying, lots of comments, and people really upset. Some people saying, well, it's okay. I mean, there, there was a lot of emotions. Yeah, and Shai, was, it's hard to get pathologists to be angry too. I, I, was, I, was, I was, honestly, honestly I, was I was surprised by that because there was a lot of... I they were acting were, like he, they were acting like oncologists, not pathologists. I, I think there was a lot of angst, to be honest, and in fact, that is what generated the idea of doing this podcast because I was a little bit surprised by this. So I'll start by you, Aaron. Why do you think there was? Well, first of all, is my observation correct? And if it's correct, I mean, why do you think there was a lot of angst about this? Well, I, I was in the. I was clueless. I didn't realize there was going to be two classification systems until all of a sudden I, I saw this. I mean, I can imagine that, you know, the reason why there's two is because there's clearly some disagreements uh, amongst uh, people in the field enough where they 
had to divide ways and do these separate, even though it's practically the same thing. Um, I can't speak to why, how those disagreements, I would love to know, uh, but that's clearly what's happening here, right? Why else would there be uh, two things that are identical? But, but, but why, why was there yeah. anger? I guess, why, uh, were, uh, why was there, there was a sense that this was such a bad thing. I, I, again, this may be my- We want to all be, like mental pathology is already a small world, like you would, you would think in the most important as an outsider making an observation in the lovely small world of metapathology, you think that there would be enough uh, friendship and uh, agreement to have one classification of the cancers they treat, you know, uh, or diagnose. Uh, uh, I can't really specify, you know, that's why I think there might be some, there must be some issues. So, I don't know if Sonam knows more, um, but I don't know what you want to Sonam, talk about. Do you think I'm over reading this, that there was some angst and anger a little bit on social media about this? Okay, let me start by this. I think, you know, Twitter is a very, um, very uh, provocative place. People love to like create drama and- um, I mean, Oh, who does that? Look. No one does I, that. Like, okay. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I don't think it's great having two classification systems, but again, I think if you read, you know, into the classification systems, they are not that different. Uh, so I think that's, you know, that that's one thing to be hopeful um, about. Um, and then also, you know, I think it's also important to realize that, you know, classification systems are evolving systems, right? These, this is not going to be the last classification system. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, there's going to be revised iterations of the WHO, revised iterations of the ICC, and who knows, maybe they'll merge together again. You know what's going to happen, what's going to happen, I think, here's what's going to, here's what these two classifications have generated. They have generated countless podium debates in many conferences to come. You will have one person saying WHO, one saying ICC, and you'll get votes and ARS. And it's going to be like, it's going to be a meeting organizer dream come true for a pathologist. <laughs> I think so. What can I tell you? Like, we made this so you can invite us so we can. No, I I'm think just, that's I'm what's going to happen. Oh. All right. Well, no, look, I, you um, know. I think I think this was great. I'm gonna uh, let you both with the final comments from uh, each side, Sanam. Um, I know we probably did not cover everything. We tried. I think this is just about high level thing. We probably should do one on lymphoid malignancies as well. But any any last comments you want to tell listeners about the topic and 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 so on? Yeah, I mean, I think you know. I, I, you know, I'm a very optimistic person. So I, I tend to look at things, you know, glass half full. So I think maybe for the trainees or for, you know, junior investigators, um, there is some opportunity in this, you know, look at where, where the classifications differ and see if we can actually come up with data that can rectify the differences, right? We'll come up with objective data that can rectify the differences. To me, that's a step forward, and it's also an opportunity for us to learn, right? So we, we just keep looking, we keep making better classifications, and hopefully, you know, help patients, because I think that, you know, that is the ultimate goal. It doesn't matter if you're a diagnostician or if you're an oncologist treating a patient. Really, you're in the business of helping patients. That is what you want to do. And so we need to figure out how to do that. Erin, last comments, and then you need to go to run on the beach. Yes, it's, you know, as an educator, I mean, I, I have I have printed out uh, the WHO, uh, both the lymphoid and in 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 uh, myeloid 
and I'm reading through them and uh, I am dead set on learning them so I can teach them. And uh, I think I will just settle the debate. I will only tweet out WHO classification uh, in, in my tweets and I will be okay, hopefully- Make sure the, you the, both need to send me the links for both of them so we could uh, put them in the podcast notes. Yeah, just go for sure. I will. So I believe I'm, I'm not sure, you know, so, um, you know, I apologize if I'm wrong, but I think that the the blood paper, the ICC paper is actually behind a paywall. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, if any anyone from it blood is behind is a paywall. listening to this, no. right, it I is, think it would be good yes. to make make yeah. that make that open access and make it available uh, to people, you know, so that they, they can use and read, you know, the, the ICC classification as well. And I think, you know, for, for people like Aaron and myself, I think, you know, we just have to do our best to educate people and, you know, uh, tweet and, you know, do maybe, I don't know, I'm, I'm probably going to start podcast, doing a tweet every day. Sure. I mean, uh, yeah, we're happy to. Thank you so much for having us. I mean, I, I think this, this, this is a great opportunity to, to talk about this and hopefully open the doors of education. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in all fairness, it's a difficult topic to do. Um, to do on a podcast. There's a lot of nuances. It's also a difficult topic for general audience. And I think uh, to your point, Sanam, it's one of those things where I believe they will need some workshops for the general pathologist, for the community pathologist. And I think with time, uh, there will be adoption. I do agree with Aaron, though. I believe institutions will adopt one or the other. Uh, I think clinical trials will be different. And I think when you design a clinical trial for MDS or AML, you will put in your inclusion criteria classification by this or by the other, because you don't- Yeah, I, I mean, I can tell you that we have already done this for one trial yeah, that yeah, I was I'm just involved saying, with. We were talking you will, about you will have discussing, to. you know, how should, we, how should we modify the wording so that to. we can be more you inclusive. Will you will have to. Um, All right. Well, look, this was amazing. This was wonderful. It was short, sweet, and great. We are all hoping for this episode to go viral because you thank know, you. two amazing colleagues and friends and uh, educators. So thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. Appreciate your help and appreciate you joining Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to let me know how I'm doing. It's very helpful. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, or you can reach me through my website, shadinabhan.com. Don't forget to watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Healthcare Unfiltered, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, I hope you know a little bit more about the new leukemia classification than before. And I promise you, we need to do more episodes on this. But before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Maya Angelou. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. Until next time, take care.